Everybody's had some adventures Everybody's had a few close calls Everybody's got a story What's yours? Hello friends and welcome to episode 2 of Cool Story with David J. McNeil. Two years ago, my wife and I threw caution to the wind and decided to split our time between living summers on a boat on the Toronto harbour front and winters in a small town in Costa Rica. And boy, did we meet a lot of people in doing so. And so was born Cool Story, a perfect opportunity to have a brand new conversation every week with one of the many fascinating individuals I've met over our travels. This week, my guest will be Frank, a friend I met here in Playa del Coco who retired recently after a 31-year career as a California corrections officer. It was really interesting to hear what it takes to work in such a pressure cooker environment. So stick around for that. Also, be sure to stay tuned after my interview for the latest installment of what we like to call Please don't try this at home This week's story is presented by my friend and former colleague from my YTV and CBC days Paul Papadopoulos, so don't miss that. Also, I just wanted to thank you all for listening to episode one, featuring my chat with my buddy, actor, and TV host, Joe Motiki. That was a lot of fun. Thanks also for liking my new Facebook page and following me on your favorite podcast platforms. Much appreciated. This process has been a lot of fun. Over the course of my career, I've had many opportunities to appear in productions in TV and film and do voice work, but I've always either played a character or read copy in ads. So this is the first time I've actually performed as myself. So that's interesting. I'm learning a lot and I'm having a lot of fun too. Plus, I've always thought it was important to do something every once in a while that scares you a little. I'd say that this fits the bill. But enough about me. I hope you enjoy my chat with my friend Frank. Due to the sensitive nature of Frank's work as a California corrections officer, I felt it not necessary to share Frank's last name or specific information about the facility he spent the greatest part of his career at. Here's my conversation with Frank. Hey, Frank, how you doing? Good. How are you doing, David? I am doing great. I know you're, uh, you're, you're back uh, home in the U.S. right now, and uh, you're weathering uh, self-isolation right now? <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. Yeah? You're hanging in there? Yeah, everything's good. Uh, yeah. Staying busy. Nice. First of all, I wanted to congratulate you on your, your recent retirement. How long ago was it that you retired now? I retired two years ago yesterday. Two years ago yesterday. Yeah, and April that is 30th. on April 30th, and that is after a 31-year career as a, a correctional peace officer. Yes, that's correct. What age was it that you first started working in that profession? I started when I was 26 years old. I applied for corrections. Um, within nine months, I was in the academy. I passed everything and uh, all my uh, tests that I needed to take, and um being law enforcement, uh, they kind of put you through a lot more screening. So uh, it was well worth it. I got through the academy and uh, started off at CCI Tehachapi, which was um, maximum security prison. Okay. And how long did you work at that facility? 
I worked about a year uh, above Bakersfield, California, in Tehachapi. It's way up in the mountains. Uh, approximately a year later, I transferred to uh, another prison that was uh, closer to my home where mm -hmm. I was from. What was it that made you decide that this is a, a career that you wanted to embark on? Did you know somebody else or had you been to a career fair or something? Or what, what was it that tipped you off? Yeah, I bumped into a guy that was working security for a hospital and uh, he told me that he was leaving that job for a real job and he told me all about it and I was kind of excited and um, I applied and I got right in also probably a year or less uh, after he did and uh, the reason I considered it was wonderful pay, excellent yep. benefits. Mm -hmm. um, it just seemed like uh, the people that got out of the academy and started working and everybody had new cars, they were buying houses. It, it was a real job, real yeah. money. Yeah. So the pay was good. And uh, as I'm seeing now, the retirement is very good too. Right. You were 26 years old, so you were still pretty young, but were you worried about your own security? Did you put too, a lot of thought into uh, your safety and, and, and what that would be like working in a, in a prison? Yeah. When you're in the academy, they show you all the videos and all the movies and all the training on how to stay safe. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, in that part of the training, I, I really listened up. So uh, most of the time you're in pretty safe areas, but when you aren't in a safe area, then you need to make that phone call or get more staff or get some backup. Right. And you learn, you learn all that. So yeah. I, for the most part, uh, I felt pretty safe throughout my career. There was a few times when I didn't and um, I, I got to go home every night. So right. I'm, thank, I'm thankful for that. Yeah, and I'm sure too, when you've mentioned then there are incidents where your safety is compromised, you probably learn a lot, an awful lot from those moments. Yeah, correct. So you worked at that, uh, that facility for uh, 30 years of your, of your career. That's a, that's a long time to work at one place. <laughs> it really is. Sometimes it, it felt like it was going fast, but once my kids all grew up and uh, was in my 50s, I really had to understand that uh, this line of work isn't for older folks. <laughs> right. So um, I, uh, I retired at the right time for me. It was, mm -hmm. it was a perfect time. You mentioned to me that, um, that a, lot of, a lot of people who get into this profession go in and they are changed by the job in some way or in different ways. And, and then that was a, real estate, a, a realization that you had had as well, that at some point, um, there was sort of, sort of a click. And I think you mentioned that it was after talking to a mental health professional or somebody like that. If you're not careful, you can get really stressed out in this line of work. So the, the best thing to do when those problems, uh, when it's starting to affect you, uh, is to call the 800 number they offer you to get help, free counseling. Right. Um, they even have, uh, help for people that maybe substance abuse or alcoholism. Sure. Or Cause I, I'm guessing American. that would be pretty prevalent in a work like that, where there's, there's daily stress to the extent that there is working in a prison like that. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's pretty much confidential, but mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you hear about certain officers that are out, you, you kind of want to help them to get back in, in the game and not get terminated right so um yeah the, the there was plenty of tools to help you throughout the career if you chose to use it and i i recommended it to uh, a lot of people that i've worked with uh, if you need help get it
That's amazing. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, it's not surprising that that resource is there, but um, uh, it, yeah, it's amazing that people actually reach out and use it because I know it can be difficult to divulge your issues, especially a lot of guys. They don't really want to talk about some of that stuff and some of the stuff that's bothering them. They kind of keep it to themselves, kind of an old school thing, right? Yeah, that's true. In that line of work that I was doing, um, you, you, you don't want to show weakness. You want to be fair but be, be strict, be tough. Um, and uh, if you're fair, then pretty, you're gonna be respected by the inmates. And what are the sort of the most common incidents that would happen on, uh, on your cell block? Is that, is that what the term is, a cell block? Yeah, or a housing unit. Okay. Uh, I would say the most times when you hear an alarm, it's uh, depending on what institution because some are more serious and some have more activity. Uh, but it, my line of work um, at that prison, most of the time it's just inmates fighting. Yeah, just fist fights, that sort of thing. Yeah, and the worst kind of fight I would say would be a cell fight when you mm -hmm. got people slinging in a, or stabbing in a cell because you got nowhere to go. That door is locked. Right. It's a, uh, a cell is a death trap. Yeah. You can, you can get whacked in a cell. Yeah. And so what, what something like that goes down, are you going to, in, in, in hockey, you know, a fight will break out. There's not as much fighting in hockey as there used to be, but a fight will break out and the refs will sit and watch and they wait, they wait until the players wear down. Is there a certain amount of that that happens before you go in? Or are you responsible to jump in there right from the get-go and make sure that you can, you can shut things down? Well, if it's not inside the cell and it's in the day room, yeah, you can approach them and give them orders to stop. You can use your pepper spray. You can use your baton um, if they don't stop. Uh, you don't know, you don't want to use excessive force when it, you don't need it. You just want to use reasonable amount of force to gain compliance. Right. By the inmate. But if it's a cell fight, they recommend you don't open the door until more staff are there or supervisors there. You make a decision. They'll, Usually a supervisor will make a decision at that point whether the door it's time to open the door or it's just time to spray use pepper spray through yeah. the door through the food port okay so yeah if you play by the rules, you tend to stay out of trouble as far as those situations right because those rules also would make sure that protects you from a legal point of view as well right yes what makes a good correctional peace officer <laughs> Uh, you got to be willing to learn yeah. and you don't want to go in as a know-it-all mm -hmm. and um, be a good partner, you know, uh, genuinely care about your partner's safety and, and they'll hopefully do the same for you because you really don't have much safety other than the other officers working around you. Right. So that's about it for that. I mean, you, well, you had mentioned to me that uh, part of the, the reason that you thought you had had a very successful career uh, was that you were a good communicator and that that went a long way. Yeah. You learn uh, skills to uh, communicate with uh, prisoners and other, other staff. And, you know, I, I always told the young guys they were new, just, just be a good citizen. You know, right. treat the inmates right. Treat your staff right. Treat treat everybody right. And if you if you got to get tough, then they realize, hey, this guy will be reasonable up to a certain point. And then if you can't gain compliance with an inmate, then you take it to the next level. 
At the end of the day, is your job something that you can shake off when you go home? I guess that's something that you have to learn, but, but how did you deal with that? Um, what I did was I'd get down to the gym and I'd go an hour, hour and a half, and I would destroy my body to save my brain. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then that's, that's part of the, the, uh, the decompression, right, uh, when you get home. But that's also, I'm guessing, for, for a lot of guards, being able to have a, well, having a, a large physique is part of uh, being somebody who looks like you shouldn't mess with. Yeah, not all the officers are big uh, and strong, and you get you get a, a lot of different makes and models of people that work in the prison. But um, most of the correctional officers, um, I shouldn't say most, maybe there's a percentage of them that are in tip-top shape, pretty buffed. And what I learned about the prison is inmates uh, will look at staff, and if you're skinny, they're going to call you. Hey, you're skinny. You got you. you you're too thin to win. I mean, they would right. always come at you. So, but if, but if you're kind of buffed, uh, they respect you more. And um, did you often get together after work with other, uh, other employees or is that something that was common? Um, it, I, I want to say it wasn't common for me because uh, usually when you're off duty, you don't want to be with other officers talking about work. Right. You don't want. So if you had a couple buddies that you did something with, maybe maybe you talked to them at the gym, or maybe you got invited to their daughter's wedding or something. Right. Um, I'm going to say few and far in between. You don't expose yourself and your family to problems. <laughs> right. You you want to when you leave the prison, you want to be in a normal environment. Yeah friends, yeah. family, church, whatever you're into, working out. Right. You, All that stuff that you, keeps you grounded. Keeps you grounded, keeps you healthy. Correct. Right. Uh, I was looking on Wikipedia and I was checking out some of the different prisons around California. They often list a lot of high-profile inmates. Did you have a fair number of high-profile inmates at your facility? Yeah. Over the years, I just there was just so many, you know, um, Lyle Menendez, uh, Tex Watson. Those are some Onion big Field. names. Yeah, and before that was the Onion Field Killer, Gregory Powell, and I think he passed away. And I, think, I know Charlie Manson's passed away. And my brother's institution, he 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 knew Charlie Manson. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and there, you know, there's just all kinds of guys uh, doing time for so many different things. Yeah. Uh, but it's just kind of fascinating to listen to some of their stories. Sure. Not that you believe, not that you believe everything they're saying, but they got some pretty interesting stories. Right. And I guess some of those guys, if they're in there for life, they've got no, nothing to lose so they can brag and, and uh, embellish and all that kind of stuff because uh, they're not going to see the light of day anyways. Yeah, that's, that's correct. You mentioned um, Tex Watson was one of the people that you had gotten to know. Can you be friends with an inmate? You're not supposed to. You don't want to be over familiar with yeah. a, a, pris a prisoner, but you can have a rapport. Right. Uh, a normal rapport. Uh, Tex Watson worked uh, for me, he swept and mopped the floors every day, and he discussed quite a bit about his case, about some of the murders, remorse that he had. Uh, you know, he wasted his whole life when he got involved in all those murders with the Manson family. And is there any kind of protocol as to how much you can discuss with prisoners? You could uh, go in an office and invite the inmate in, you sit down and close the door. You can have those kind of conversations. Oh, really? Um, but... You don't want to have conversations uh, 
about doing anything illegal, you know, sure. Cause if, if you're going to get a, a job in law enforcement and do 31 years and you make it, you are pretty much by the book. Uh, yeah. you, you don't see people going that, <laughs> that long in a career, uh, if they're going to get in trouble. Right. I've seen a lot of people get fired over the years. So many people. And going back to what you were saying about, like, for instance, we'll take Tex Watson. You know, having a rapport with a person like that, is that like any relationship? It takes quite a while before that person trusts you to divulge this stuff. Or, or in this case, like a guy like Tex Watson, he's, he's just happy to chat. Yeah, tech, you'll find a lot of prisoners um, are seeking normality. And the environment is not normal. Yeah. So they see myself. I'll just use myself. Come, I come to work every day and I'm, I'm showing normality. I'm showing a guy that's got a job. Yeah. He gets here on time. I have life skills. I'm functioning. Right. I'm preparing for a retirement. I've had a daughter get married. I'm, I'm doing all these things in my life and holding down this job. So inmates, they kind of gravitate toward uh, somebody that they could use as a role model. Like, right. wow, uh, you did this and that, and you, you just, you you still show up to work. You've been here for years. Everybody knows you. Uh, you can have a, a good rapport with inmates. That's part of your job, is to um, get to know what's going on in your housing unit, get to know what's going on with your prisoners. It sounds and, like you're saying they get to live vicariously a bit through you. That they don't have like they don't have that normalcy. And here's a little piece. It's something to to cling to, to feel normal, to feel human. That that they have this relationship with a, with another person who's got their shit together, to, as they say. Yeah, yeah, that's true. They um, because there's a lot of nonsense in uh, prison. Prisoners get tired of prisoners. They get tired of all that. But to sit there and have a conversation with uh, an officer or a counselor or somebody else that's um, employees, uh, you, can, you can talk with the inmates. You just don't want to get off track and talk about something that can get you in trouble. Right. And that's the main thing is just keeping it neutral. Right. And what was your general take on Tex Watson? Tex Watson uh, was a young guy at that point when he um, came to California to Hollywood. Right. And uh, he got involved with uh, Charlie Manson on the beach. And Manson was uh, kind of a charismatic kind of guy. And yeah. he, he started this little Manson family and uh, decided to use these kids. I mean, they're like in their early 20s uh, to do murders right. for him. Yeah, his, I think his take was that he was, he was going to use these kids to uh, start a, a race war. That's correct. And um, <laughs> it, it just goes to show you how uh, jaded their thinking was. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. That's correct. And and uh, from what I understand, I mean, I remember reading uh, when I was much younger. I remember reading the book Helter Skelter, which was written by the prosecutor in the case. And it basically seems that Manson brainwashed the kids and had them uh, hooked on a lot of dope that kept them from seeing things clearly, and then and then kind of pushed them into a situation to murder for him. But Tex Watson was the was the guy who pretty much did the deed, right? He was, and and the rest were kind of along for the ride. Um. Yeah. He. I think. They found him guilty on seven murders, and right. uh, yeah, he was he was involved with a couple of the. Um, there was two two girls with him, Susan Adkins, and there was one other one. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But yeah, that was what they were supposed to do was to go do the murders for Charlie. And did he, did he, did you get a sense from him that he believed that if it wasn't for Charlie's manipulation and the drugs, that this was something that was not in his character? Yeah. He, he, the stuff that he kind of shared with me was, uh, remorse. Mm -hmm. Um, drugs played a big thing, big part of it. Right. Uh, yeah, I was told that he was, uh, on heavy drugs, uh, when this was all happening. Right. Now, in general terms, dealing with inmates, is there a lot of remorse? Do you see remorse often in inmates? Or they kind of just stick to uh, the I didn't do it or, or that, that sort of thing? I know in the film, uh, Shawshank Redemption, it's, it's just a film, but there's, uh, they often mention, well, everybody in here is innocent. Nobody will tell you they're guilty. I'm, I'm guessing that's, <laughs> that's more of a movie uh, thing than anything else. Um. Uh, a lot of guys won't, won't, uh, they're in denial. Yeah. See, the, the prison system's full of sociopaths. Uh, I read a book one time called The Sociopath Next Door. Mm-hmm. And what this, what this book talked about is in society, you can pick 100 people, four out of those 100 people in society are sociopaths. Right. So uh, I, I don't really need to explain to you what a sociopath is. Yeah, but the the prisons are full of them. A lot of times, you're not gonna. Uh, I find the remorse, the remorseful inmates, are the ones that have been in for a long time, and they really wish they could get out. Right. They really wish they would have thought things through before they committed the crime. Um, yeah, part of part of the programs that they have for lifers, because uh, some lifers do get out, they have to go to uh, a series of classes mm-hmm. like uh, victims awareness. AA, NA, there's just a whole lot of things they can do to prepare themselves for a parole hearing. I've seen some guys get out that did a lot of time. They got out. Well, that must be something else coming out on the other end of that, of, uh, after doing so much time and trying to uh, reintegrate into society. How much, how much work is actually done in prisons these days, would you say, to rehabilitate people in any kind of way? Is that uh, a myth? No, they're spending a lot of money. My department used to be called California Department of Corrections, CDC. Well, a number of years ago, they added a R at the end, mm-hmm. CDCR, and that means end rehabilitation. So they, they've pumped a lot of money into the system, uh, increasing mental health mm-hmm. uh, professionals in the prison. Yeah. Um, classes, vocational. They can work in the prison industries. And they can yep. uh, manufacture things that the state sells. Some of the institutions make American flags, California state flags, screen printing. They make furniture. They make fighter gear for the California Department of Forestry. Okay. For those officers that are working in that line of work. Right. Um, there's a lot of things that the prison PIA manufactures and then they sell. They can sell the product. I think it's uh, up to 75 cents an hour. Okay. So you get out with something in your pocket. Yeah. A lot of those, a lot of those lifers uh, saved a lot of money. They've got, I don't want to say hundreds of thousands of dollars, but I've talked to several guys that saved up to $30,000 just from working in PIA for years and years and years. You know? Well, that's one way to get out in the street after two and not at least have a bit of a buffer. So you're not lured right away back to the criminal life. When you see inmates going through programs like that, do you see 
a change in their behavior or their outlook because maybe they've now got some hope or change in them? Um, not in all of them. If you're not working or going to school, then you're on uh, C status, meaning you don't get an extra time out of your cell. You have to lock up earlier in the evening. It's a different status. So most inmates will either work a job or go to school unless they are physically unable to do it. Right. So I, I would say yes. If, if a person's uh, learning to weld, they're doing it to get a certificate with hopes to get out, get a job. Would you pick this career for yourself again if you were, if you were 26 today? Uh, well, what I, what I do know about myself now is I had the right personality to work that job. I was a good communicator. I learned not to take things personal. It, it was an excellent career, but you know, I dealt with some anxiety issues, uh, which now that I've been retired two years, pretty much most of that's gone. That's a tough question. Would I do it all over again? I would say if I had other opportunities that were lucrative at the time, but I don't look back and shake my head like, oh man, I blew it. I'm living the great life. I mean, I live in Costa Rica most of the time. My wife and I are happy and retired. It's, it's been good. You've had a game plan for a long time. Yeah, I had a game plan. And when I first retired, uh, there was a year in preparation, selling our house, selling Harley's trucks, horse trailers. Um, I had a, a year and then I realized I still need something else. So I started working for the Salvation Army as a volunteer. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, so I was kind of giving back a little bit. Yeah. And uh, I did that temporarily until uh, the day came and we packed our luggage and flew to Costa Rica. Right. Why do you, why do you say you, you felt like you were giving back? Did you not feel like working as a correctional officer that in a big way you were giving back to society at the same time? You know, I probably was, but um, I get more job satisfaction talking to some of these guys uh, that are in and out of the Salvation Army and the drug programs and the work yeah. programs. Uh, I just like giving them pep talks. Right. Because there's, so there's so much negativity. Uh, I gave a lot of pep talks in prison, but these guys that actually got out of prison, uh, pep talk them, you know, tell them they got options and give them something positive. Talk to them. Not, not everybody wants to go back to prison, but not everybody has the skills or the life skills to stay out. Sure. What's your take on, on, on seeing some of these things over the years on TV or films or whatever and, and, and how they, they compare to reality of the job? <sighs> you know, I didn't watch, purposely didn't watch uh, any kind of law enforcement shows like Cops or any prison shows, but I remember watching with uh, my wife, Orange is the New Black, and I remember listening to what's going on in the background, what they're saying on the intercoms and, you know, and I have to give them credit. They nailed it. Other than the fact that it was a little, uh, it was an all women's prison and there was um, some Hollywood stuff going on. Yeah. But the day-to-day -day life in a prison facility, they nailed it. They must have had some uh, really good uh, people helping to write that. Do you think society's attitudes are changing about locking people up forever? Are we becoming more empathetic to prisoners? I think uh, a lot of people are. Um, I think if you're a victim's uh, victim family, you wouldn't feel that way. If you yeah. lost somebody that was a horrible crime and then you find out this person's up for parole um, and some of them do get out. My hunch 
is that not everybody in prison was guilty. I mean, that's just my feeling uh, after doing so much uh, work in there that there, there's some guys that you're like, oh my God, this guy, he's a good old boy. He's not um, hostile toward the officers. Uh, he's very helpful. And mm-hmm. uh, they, like, they like talking to you because you're normal. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, a lot of them are normal. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I made a choice not to read the files because if I read the files, then I'm going to start hating inmates. It's oh, really? better for me. Yeah, because you don't want to read. I didn't, I didn't want to be a counselor because uh, go, looking at what uh, some of these counselors were dealing with, uh, you got to read. You got to pick through their file. And some of them are heinous. Sure. And it's easier for me not to know and treat everybody the same way. Sure. You wanted to judge people on, on their own merit or, or based on uh, how they dealt with you? Yeah, because they're already in prison. Yeah. So it's, it's better not to have all the officers hating them. Uh, which it, that happens too. I've seen that. Um, so I think, uh, the culture's changed a little bit. I know they're letting it in California. They're letting out some lifers. I just became aware of that. There's certainly a lot of people out there that have done some horrible things, but my, my take on it has just been that there, there's so much room for error these days. We're finding out that there's problems with all kinds of different evidence these days. And, and human, you know, uh, recollections from people about what happened on the day is often not very reliable. And, and there's just, and politics and that sort of thing that every once in a while you find out about somebody who's doing life that is uh, exonerated. And uh, that's been yeah. my take. That's why I don't agree with, with uh, the death penalty, just because it's just the margin of error is too huge. Well, yeah. And um, here's the thing. If, if, if you committed a crime or you were arrested for a serious crime, and you don't have money for a good attorney, uh, the chances don't, it, 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 the people that uh, have a better chance are the ones that have family that are willing to, to drop a hundred grand or 200 grand to fight for them, get a good attorney because a public defender, a lot of times they're not that good. I don't, I, I don't know. I, I've seen some guys uh, get out of prison through this thing called the Innocence Project. Right. Got, well, my wife was just watching, uh, there's a, a documentary series on the Innocence Project right now. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it is. And I know some guys that got out uh, after years and years and years. Uh, I think the, the biggest thing they do when they first come to prison is a lot of these guys are doing a writ of habeas corpus. It's basically an, an, an appeal mm-hmm. that's supposed to, that goes up in front of the judge. And uh, most of these writs are denied. Right. But if you have a good attorney... Uh, a lot of it comes down to money and it's sad, but I've seen it. And uh, a lot of them come in there and they start fighting their case from behind the wall, mm-hmm. you know, getting a, co- getting a college degree, taking all the classes, uh, taking victims awareness, uh, taking the drugs and alcohol problem classes, uh, you know, doing everything they can do to, to be sound, found suitable for parole by the parole board. Yeah. So when you, when you meet new people today, are you, uh, do you assume right off the bat that people are, are going to be genuine, kind, or whatever? Do you, are you more guarded than I would be when I meet people, do you think? Um, no. Uh, I've pretty much let my guard down. I live in Costa Rica. Most of the expats are nice people, just trying to live the same way I'm living. Uh, decided to uh, live in another country. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't want to be so jaded. 
uh, coming out of this career. Uh, I use the counseling a lot, right. free counseling yeah. throughout the years, whether, whether it was um, coping, anxiety, marital, whatever, you got mm. free counseling. Yeah. So that's what I told the young guys before I left. Don't throw away your marriage if you're the one. If you're stressed, get some help. If, you, if you're depressed, get some medication. Get what you need. It's all offered to you. And if you try to do it by yourself and you think you don't need help, then that's when the, the real problems happen. And then, you know, they may not last in that career. Right. If they choose, choose not to get help. Yeah. I notice it on, we're, we're friends uh, on social media. So I notice from time to time, you'll post an article or a, a piece about, uh, uh, you know, unfortunate bit of news where somebody who worked in a, in a facility, somebody you might've known, or just a colleague of yours might've taken their life or, you know, had issues with PTSD. Um, same kind of thing I hear oftentimes <laughs> from soldiers. Right. They've, they've, they've done research and they found that a correctional officer working in the prison can have PTSD similar to a Vietnam veteran mm -hmm. combat soldier. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you see stabbings, you see death. You see stiff bodies uh, that have been rigor mortis that's in. You might come across a situation where I think the worst one I saw was a guy got his head stomped flat mm -hmm. like a pancake. Yeah. And it was, it was nasty. Yeah. Uh, and what you do is you, they, you learn to, to make jokes about this stuff. It's like right. the ambulance drivers. They joke mm -hmm. about these things because it's so serious that if you don't joke about it, you might stress out. Yeah. Or maybe you need to start drinking a little more or something. Gallows so, humor. Yeah. You have to process it properly. Mm -hmm. Compartmentalize. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's, I'm sure there's a lot of compartmentalizing that happens in a, in a job like that. There is a, in any job, you're raising a family at home. You've got a, you've got a wife and, and you've got to make sure that you can take good care of those people. You can't take your troubles home with you. You've got to compartmentalize. You've got to learn how to do that. Yeah, exactly. Sounds like that you, your employer had a lot of opportunities for you to get past that if you're willing to to take that. Yeah, there's a, a a new rash of suicides now in the Department of Corrections in California, where uh, more than ever, um, these officers are killing themselves, and it's very sad. Mm -hmm. uh, there's plenty of help that they can get, but correctional officers they don't ask for help. Uh, the stuff I've read is that they decide they're to kill themselves they just do it and uh it's it's really really horrible to uh just to lose people that you knew mm -hmm. i mean i've been gone two years but when i left there was a plenty of officers that have a lot of years ahead of them and some of them were my friends and when you find out that uh, they had a little marital problem or there's a separation going on and then there's two households they have to pay for and then mm -hmm. They're trying to get retired, but they might have to work a lot of overtime. And a good friend of mine dropped dead of a heart attack. It was really sad. Yeah, I'm he sorry was, to hear he that. Was, yeah, he was so close. Um, so if, if you're not dying of uh, things like that, and then there's suicide. And then there's the people that can cope and get help and move on. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and we all go through our problems. But find a way to move on uh you know there's all kinds of help the department is just uh handing out these phone numbers <laughs> call yeah. these 800 numbers and get in and get help 
Yeah. That's good to hear because like I was saying, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to chat with you about this was was to get some of the misconceptions out of the way and to talk about about uh, the individuals who work in prisons because we often see them framed in a, in a, in a way for uh, television and film that makes it very interesting for stories, but it doesn't seem, <laughs> if it was like that to work in a prison, uh, you know, the way you see it in movies and stuff like that, you figure a lot of people probably wouldn't. When I started in 1986, Man, inmates were always hurting each other, killing each other. And um, the prisons are still violent. And there's still murders and there's still rapes and there's still drug smuggling. And it's always going to, for the most part, or it's always going to have those kind of things going on. But nowadays, the inmates have options, more mm-hmm. options. The state's spending a lot of money on trying to rehabilitate. They've even got programs where they, they can take care of dogs. They have like... Uh, um, Animal therapy. Folks I've seen that those are in before. There. Yeah, I've seen uh, pieces on that where yeah, they bring in animals and 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 they they're helping. Um, oftentimes, as you put it, sociopaths figure out how to empathize with other creatures, starting with animals. Right. Yeah, it gives them another way of thinking. It gives them an opportunity to do something else besides um, sharpening up a knife, hiding it somewhere, burying it in the dirt, and then stabbing somebody, or you know. Uh, some some of the prison mentality is really pathetic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we've got some real uneducated thinking going on in there. Um, a lot of them didn't go to school or they dropped out. And they went into crime and drugs and they just, uh, they didn't hit any stop signs. They just blew through all of them. Right. And then they end up in prison. And then oftentimes that's, uh, it's it's that's the uh learning institution for bettering <laughs> how to do it next time right or you know it's 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 it can be crime college in some ways yeah that's what uh, this one guy that was um an inmate that worked around me he was a hell's angel he said man if i would have had more life skills just on how to deal with things you know uh he said his life skills were go stab somebody Mm-hmm. Go kill, go kill somebody, go rape somebody, uh, and it was all behind drugs and things. And I thought, what a real sad uh, lifestyle. And it started in this person. It started being abused at home as a child, coming home and the doors locked. They're not allowing him to come in and, and live. Right. So he ended up living out of a trunk in a uh, junkyard in the San Francisco area. And his role models were bad guys. Yeah. And that's what. <laughs> that's all you know that's all you know well so now you're retired you've been retired for two years now uh you're going to be spending a bunch of your time here in costa rica uh what would you looking forward to retirement and, and, and lifestyle and what's that carrot look like for you today the beauty of it is it's, it's all wide open I, I can choose to like you saw me in costa rica then i disappeared for a while i was in mexico yeah uh looking at Mexico, is this, is this where we want to live? And after two weeks over in Mexico, we made a decision to come back to Costa Rica. And then most recently, we came back to California to take care of uh, personal things like income tax returns. And, and this pandemic came out of nowhere and we're not allowed back yet. Yeah. Because we're, we're tourists. We're not mm-hmm. residents. Yeah. So, Plus there's just no flights. There's that part of the equation too. <laughs> the, the, the government doesn't want to see me right now over there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> your time will come. 
so you're looking you're looking forward to getting back here with your wife and uh and, and resuming your uh your your leisure lifestyle here in uh, costa rica soon oh yeah we just love uh going to the gym in the morning and then come home eat lunch or go to a restaurant in town and have some ceviche or uh something fresh from the ocean and then uh we'll go on our bicycles a block down the road and we'll go uh, snorkeling for a few hours and and just laying there on the beach and meeting new people walking by from all kinds of different places in the world. It's, it's a, it's kind of a fascinating lifestyle. It is. It is. And that's what I've been telling people. That's how this, that was the genesis of this whole podcast. I was talking to a buddy of mine about all the different people. Cause my wife and I, and you know, our story a bit, we sold our place in Toronto so that we could uh, use those assets to shake it up. So we got a, we, we decided to live on our boat at a, at a marina in Toronto on the Harbor front there. There's a whole different subset of different personalities that, that, that choose to live in a marina. So that was fascinating. Then we get a place down here in Costa Rica and it's the same kind of deal. You're meeting people from all kinds of walks of life and you're meeting people who are not like you at all. So, you know, you know, you've, yeah. you've spent a career of, of, of working with a certain type of, I guess, personalities, right, uh, who can work in a penal facility. And then you come here and it's like, wow, you know, now I have friends here who I said to, I, I got a, you know, a friend here uh, that I've met, close friend now. He's a farmer. I told him I've never met a farmer. Bizarre, you know, yeah. just because I've lived in a big city my whole life. So I had a lot of questions about what it's like to be a farmer. And that's my, my, the thing that I've really enjoyed about living in a place like, um, like uh, El Coco is that, man, all the different people you meet, it's fascinating. And they all have great stories, right? They all have a good story once uh, you're sitting at the bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> have it. a drink and uh, talk about where they came from and where you're from. And, and uh, is this your first time here? Yeah. A lot of people were, were blown away when I told them, no, we came here four times before we decided to move here. Yeah. And then there's all kinds of people that show up for a vacation and two weeks later, you know, you get, the, gone. you get the, well, I, I've had a lot of experiences with people who come down to visit and a couple months later, they, they shoot me a note and say, we're coming down to look for a place. Yeah. It, Costa Rica is a, it's a good, it's a good choice and places to go. It's very uh, safe. Just to, we can wrap up on the, on the career side. You told me that when you retired on the last day, that it was very emotional. And I was very surprised when you told me why it was an emotional day. Do you recall this? Yeah, I was working a, a half day on the day I retired. And uh, some of the inmates that I've known for years and years, some lifers, uh, approached me. Um, and they wanted to shake hands. And it was mutual. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, these inmates cried. Uh, yeah. They cried at the loss of, <laughs> uh, I don't want to toot my own horn, but uh, a good correctional officer. Mm -hmm. And they said, they said that they're never going to find uh, somebody that would talk to them or, you know, pep talk. Yeah. It was flattering. And then yeah. I shook hands and I, I walked out for the last time and um, I haven't been back. And there's really no, no reason for me to ever go back in. Mm-hmm. Well, that's quite something to make an impact like that on people's lives. Yeah, I wish the best for uh, all the staff and for the inmates that can get help or actually get out and be productive. I wish them all well, too. I didn't go in that line of work to beat up prisoners and drag my knuckles around and hate on people. Mm -hmm. Because 
it that's really not what prison's about. Well, and you're yeah. just you're just doing more harm to yourself as well, really, if you live that way. Yeah. Yeah. If I were ever to have the misfortune uh, to uh, land up in a situation where I'm incarcerated, I'd certainly want to be in a position where somebody like you was looking out for me. <laughs> yeah, I put on a lot of fires uh, in there, but uh, it's my pleasure to uh, do this uh, podcast with you. Uh, I really appreciate it, Frank. Thank you so much. All right. Cheers, man. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Frank. It was interesting. After our talk, Frank mentioned to me that based on the amount of time he had spent doing shift work inside a prison, that he himself had lived a total of 18 years of his life behind bars. Coming up next, this is my good friend Paul Papadopoulos and his submission for a little something we call... Please don't try this at home. I'm Paul Papadopoulos, and this is my story. Cuba, November 2008. My wife Lisa and I were enjoying a week away with our six-month-old son, Nico. We met this really fun English couple, Baz and Jackie from Manchester. Tons of jokes and laughter. One afternoon, we joined them for some beer and appetizers by the beach. I'd been in the pool with Nico. He was wearing those you know, little swimmer's diapers. I had Nico in one arm while I ate fried chicken bites with mayo-based sauce. So, you know, white sauce. At one point, my arm got tired. I switched arms and started eating with the other hand. I noticed a big dollop of sauce on my knuckles. I mean, like, huge. As I was listening intently to the story Baz was telling, I inadvertently sucked the chunks of sauce off my knuckles. As I swallowed, I realized that the sauce on my knuckles was greenish-brown, not white, with chunks of peas and potatoes in it. I looked straight ahead in the daze and said, I just ate my son. I just ate my son's meat. Well, Lisa, Baz, and Jackie lost it when they realized what had just happened. It had squeezed out the legs of the little swimmer's diapers all over my arm and hand, and I ate it. They were screaming with laughter. Me? I was in shock. I kept repeating, I just ate my son's over and over. While I went to the bathroom to clean both of us up, Lisa, Baz, and Jackie roared with laughter. Every scat joke imaginable. When I came out, they tried to keep a straight face. <laughs> no luck. So I will forever be able to say to Nico, Hey man, I've had enough of you. I'm Paul Papadopoulos, and that's my story. Thank you, Paul. Thanks again also to Mr. Jerry Stamp, who wrote and performed the Cool Story theme song and all of the jingles and stings that appear on the show. Do yourselves a favor and look for Jerry's music wherever you stream. And finally, thank you for listening. Everybody's had some adventures. Everybody's had a few close calls. Everybody's got a story What's yours?